Welcome to the Maximizing Outcomes Podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Achieving bigger and better results with money, family, and business isn't about creating a bigger to-do list for yourself. It's about who can help you create results without you having to do all the work. Listen as we provide uncommon perspectives, powerful resources, and experienced people that can help you maximize outcomes in your life. Let's get to the show. Hello, and welcome to Maximizing Outcomes with Jim McGovern. Jim, I know there's a ton of stuff going on in your world. How are you? Lots of stuff going on, Eric. Just moved over the weekend. So uh, that's always a, an interesting project. You never realize how much stuff you have until you pack it up and move. Right. So, yeah, we're a little, little groggy here this morning as we, uh, or this afternoon, I should say. So, yeah, I thought it was morning. But uh, <laughs> we got a, a great show lined up for today. So I think it's going to be uh, something that I think our clients are going to listen to several times because it's going to be a little bit technical, but I think really important information. Yeah. One of my favorite things, Jim, honestly, is the fact that these podcasts have a rewind button. And with the guests <laughs> that you bring on, that's what I find myself, even though I'm here live with you doing this, I, I still find myself rewinding every once in a while, just get one more nugget of information. So that, that's fantastic. Who'd you bring on? So today we have Eric Metz, who is the president and chief investment officer at Spider Rock Advisors. And we're going to be discussing creative ways to address some of the most challenging investment problems that we see our clients face. And we're going to be addressing those through option strategies. So Eric's going to walk us through ways to manage risk and the tax impact when you have a large amount of money in a single stock. Because you know, we've seen people just from a variety of situations where they have a high concentration in a single company stock and they have a couple of dilemmas. First is a lot of times they want to hold the stock in case it continues to do really well, but they don't want to hold that stock if it, if it drops. They want to protect against losses in case the, the stock when the company starts to fall apart. The other thing is they may want to diversify the stock but selling it might trigger taxes. Or they might have a portfolio they're trying to generate additional income on, but that stock, you know, obviously they can't call the board of directors and ask for a bigger dividend, but they want to find another way to generate extra cash flow off that position. So Eric and his team at Spider Rock Advisors are able to do all these things we just mentioned and more, and they do this with some pretty sophisticated derivative strategies. So with that, Eric Metz, welcome to the show. I appreciate it, Jim. Thanks, Eric, as well. I uh, look forward to what we get into today. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun, a lot of great information. And I thought it'd be just a good place to start just to get a little bit of an understanding about your background in this industry, because I don't think most people wake up one day and decide, I'm going to start a company that manages option strategies. So can you just shed a little bit of light on your journey that led to the creation of Spider-Rock Advisors and uh, and why Spider-Rock was, was created? Sure. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I'll try to rewind the clock and, and be brief. Um, began in academia, just kind of studying options in general and the theory behind them, um, and then quickly pivoted as I got pretty bored pretty quick in the academic setting uh, and, and to go to try to trade down in the CBOE and the Mercantile Exchange in Chicago. So joined a firm out of a graduate school called Chicago Trading Company, uh, large proprietary derivatives team here in Chicago had presence on the both board of trade, the mercantile exchange and the CBOE. Um, I joined in the, in the early 2000s and quickly it was evident that the, the marketplace was going to go off of what they called open outcry. Um, you, you used to see these folks in, in trading places or on CNBC wearing colorful jackets. That was all real. Um, but quickly the world was changing and everything was going off off the exchanges into a digital marketplace. And so technology is at the forefront of that. Um, navigated a few proprietary trading firms over the years and then left to a boutique asset management firm uh, called River North. 
And frankly, it was there that was the epiphany and eye-opening experience to, to really deliver upon the value proposition of listed options for the clients, right? So think family offices, ultra high net worth individuals, but as technology kept creeping into the industry, automation kept creeping into the industry, uh, democratizing, for lack of a better phrase, sometimes an overworld use case there, but democratizing the asset class, it was at the forefront of the vision of the business model and really solving for common investment challenges uh, where derivatives are, are a very large value prop. And you mentioned it in your opener. It's like, Income, downside protection, concentrated stock. Yes, those are reasons that everybody comes to the asset class. But the biggest value prop is really, really where you can focus on the after-tax outcomes and where there are tax frictions. And we often, you know, like to ask all of our clients, you know, what would you do if taxes were zero? And and those answers, you'd be surprised, can can often open the eyes of the value proposition of our work. Um, so in 2015, uh, um, left River North to uh, join my now partner at Spider Rock Holdings, which is a large derivatives technology firm, and begun the journey of Spider Rock Advisors. And so it was building on an infrastructure into the underlinks of Fidelity and TD and Schwab and Pershing and UBS and Northern Trust, et cetera. And then building on top of that a software, both internally and externally, to to listen to the objectives, to deliver personalized and customized outcomes for clients. Um, so there's been a big movement recently uh, in the defined outcome, structured outcome ETF landscape. Uh, those aren't new from where we sit. Those are just option strategies in an ETF wrapper um, with a different, I'll call it objective. So that's the quick journey. Uh, 2021 was a very large inflection point for the organization. We grew it to about $2 billion over the uh, from 2015 through the pandemic. And then uh, at that juncture, BlackRock, um, who everybody knows, if you haven't heard of SpiderRock, you probably know BlackRock. They uh, took a minority interest in our business and became our exclusive distribution partner. Um, so our team is just shy of 40 folks. Uh, we mostly reside in Chicago. We have a few work from home um, teammates you know, scattered throughout the country, but roughly 40 feet people in Chicago with uh, BlackRock as a minority investor and our exclusive distribution partner. Fantastic. So before we get too deep into some of the strategies that your firm is able to create, why don't we start with the basics? Because a lot of people that are listening, they may have heard of stock options before, um, but they don't always know what that means. So can we start with just some of the the high level basics of you know what is an option? What is a put? What is a call? How do they work? And then we'll jump into some, some different scenarios. Yeah. I mean, all of our work is in a call or a put. Uh, these are all listed instruments, and, and that's a key point to our entire business model and all of our investment solutions, and in that there is no real counterparty other than the U.S. government. Uh, the Options Clearing Corp., the OCC, is the back office that centrally clears all of these exchanges uh, trading, and so our work on behalf of our clients is no different. Um, you asked the pointed question, what is a call? What is a put? A put option, think of it like an insurance contract, right? So you have insurance on your home, you have insurance on your car, uh, maybe even your life, not to make a morbid discussion out of it, but nonetheless, um, you pay premiums every year. And if in the event that something bad happens, you exchange those premiums for a settlement um, or a lump sum. And so the difference here is that uh, all option contracts have a time to maturity, they have a strike price. They have an underlying security, so Apple or Microsoft or the S&P. Um, they have interest rates and dividends embedded in them. And most importantly, they have a volatility piece. And this is, this is the variable that outlines the cost of the insurance or in the reciprocal fashion, the income potential. And so these contracts, you know, 
govern a buyer and a seller to give the buyer the right, but not the obligation at some point in the future to either buy or sell the underlying instrument. Perfect. So let's start with a scenario where you know, somebody has concentrated stock and how do they get that? Again, could have come from, they worked at a publicly traded company. Maybe they're there for many, many years. They accumulated an awful lot of stock. Now they've got a very large portion of their net worth tied up in that one company and they're looking to diversify, looking to do some things, but they've got some tax exposure or maybe somebody who just was pumping money into a particular company. And uh, like I think of you know, people who maybe invested in Apple, you mentioned Apple a few minutes ago, that uh, you know they were investing in the early 2000s and they held that stock and now it's worth a lot of money. And they're saying, this is great if they keep growing, but I'm concerned that I want to sell it. But again, I'm worried about that tax situation. So how can options be used to, to deal with this concentrated stock situation with a low cost basis? Jim, you'd be surprised. The use cases you just highlighted are ubiquitous in, in the world of private wealth and comprise of almost 40% of our business. And so you're really hitting home on, I'll call it, the, the, there's two large components to this. One is sometimes the emotional attachment to how that wealth has been accumulated. And sometimes is what I'll call the rec um, recency bias in that the same stocks that have done well, often folks think will be the same stocks that should continually do well. And so this is where the risk management, this is where our clients, the financial advisors really step in and provide you know, an objective sounding board. But in absence of tax, what would you do with those positions? And you'd, you'd be surprised. Half, half the clients will say, I'd sell it all. Others would say, we'll trim. Or there's some subset that they would do nothing because they foresee the future to, to have the same outcomes as the past. Where options come in is you're not actually going to sell any of the security, but you're just going to reduce the risk that you have in that security. Everybody tries to conceptualize what that means. Like if you have a Schwab or a TD or a Fidelity statement, and you had a million dollars in a security and the stock goes down 10%, well, you're going to be down $100,000. With an overlay or whether it's covered calls, protective puts, collars, or any combination therein, you're going to be down less than $100,000. And so it's that risk management, reduce risk without paying taxes that we're really striking um, you know, the conversation around. So again, taxes are the biggest known friction to long-term wealth creation. So if we can avoid those known outcomes and instead live in a probabilistic world, you know, income is a coveted need, downside protection, insurance, those are sometimes synonymous. Um, those are the other, and then you can kind of blend and, and marry these things together. So they don't need to be a binary, I can do one or the other. These things often work in tandem. So can, can you give us an example? Because I'm, I'm trying to you know, take the, the lay person who has never heard of this before and they're going, yeah, I do have a bunch of money in a company. And I'm worried about this thing going down and worried about tax efficiency. Like, how do you put the strategy together? Uh, so we'll generically describe a million dollar position with, let's just call it cost basis of zero. And the starting point is if you would sell all of it, and if we want to assume capital gains or 20%, then you'd owe Uncle Sam $200,000. So let's not do that. And let's keep the position right where it is and instead apply an option strategy, whether it be selling calls or buying puts. We'll leave it at that for now. And so the, the real conversation is, do you want to own insurance on this position so that you can sleep at night and always know that you have, let's just choose $900,000. So that's 10% away. Um, or are you trying to maximize your total return and, and seek more income? So that's where the conversation begins. Uh, for the folks that want to receive more income, um, we will find the best month and the best strike to sell a call option. So that's going to give somebody else in the world uh, the ability to buy your stock. Now, don't worry, we'll prevent that later um, from ever happening. But nonetheless, we're going to 
put some amount of options premium in your account. So you'll see it as cash. So your million dollars on on day two um, will have, have two new line items. One will have $100,000 of cash, 10% call option premium. And you'll simultaneously see a call option liability of negative 100,000. So for any accountants out there, asset liabilities, cash goes up $100,000 and you have an options liability offsetting that. Through time, that's the asset that will work for you. If nothing changes in the world and the stock stays still, then that $100,000 liability will evaporate and the cash will stay put. And you rinse and repeat this process over and over and over again. So that is the income seeking. I don't want to sell my stock and pay taxes. And in addition, I'd like to seek some augmented income stream. That That is that use case. So hopefully that brings it to light a little bit there. Sure. So if, if that stock goes down, then what happens to the value of that option? Sure. So time has to pass. Um, stocks will gyrate. And if the stock goes down, then the option will decrease in value. So that cash will stay in the account and the $100,000 liability will go down. Let's just call it to 50,000, maybe a couple of weeks later. And then as time further passes, that will evaporate to zero as long as the stock price is below the strike price at expiration. Now our team will collectively manage those in the interim in an active capacity, but the the process of selling an option and letting it expire or the stock go down, whichever happens first or fastest, um, will dictate how much of that $100,000 becomes a profit in, in the investor's account. Okay. And then the stock goes the other direction. They haven't sold the stock. They still own it. So the stock goes up in value. What happens there? Yeah, this is this is a key element and, and really a concerted effort of ours at Spider Rock Advisors. Everybody who has ever uh, attempted to do this on their own, one of the first questions they ask us is, well, if the stock rallies above the strike price, what happens, right? Do I automatically get assigned? The answer is no. Um, and how we prevent that is a very objective, systematic process, but we will insert ourselves and buy that back at a loss. Now, if we did nothing, they are correct in assuming that if expiration comes uh, and the stock is above the strike price, then it d- definitely will indeed get exercised and their stock will be sold. But we will we will prevent that in a process we call a no call away provision. But that's just in keeping the integrity of the position intact so that there is no tax event and you preserve your basis. Um, through active management, that can be achieved. But the mechanics of the call option themselves, if if and when the stock is is through strike price at expiration, it could get called away. Um, but our team's, you know, one of the value propositions that we offer to our clients, that being the advisor, uh, is to monitor and manage that process. So I know you're not a tax advisor, but tax is definitely entered into the conversation here. So what kind of, of tax friction does somebody have to consider when they're doing this? Because again, if the, if the objective is, I want to make sure that my stock doesn't plummet in value and I lose a bunch of money. And traditionally, people have been taught, well, the only way to handle that is you better sell some of this and just pay some of the tax. And we want to manage risk first and worry about the taxes second. But this could provide an, an alternative to that. Yeah. I mean, we, we tell our clients, you know, selling the security, uh, depending upon your basis, is the number one known friction where you have a known outcome of wealth destruction, right? That's the tax friction. So to not enforce that that friction, a derivatives overlay can get you from a risk perspective where you like, but the tax equation only becomes clear thereafter, right? Markets have to gyrate and time has to pass for the PL or the tax consequences of the options to really, you know, come to light. In that same conversation, Jim, you know, options no differently than any other investment have different tax ramifications depending upon the strategy. Generally speaking, however, the goal is to grow the client's wealth over time in a risk-adjusted capacity. And after you take taxes in consideration, the after-tax outcomes are often superior than having sold the stock and reinvesting in 
anything else. And and when you think about anything else, that's a that's a generalized statement in that once you pay tax, you have a lower nest egg to invest in. So therefore, to achieve the same after-tax wealth, you have to achieve higher returns in your new investments. That's the key analysis that our team will work with our clients around. But that tax friction, the biggest tax friction is the underlying basis in selling the stock. Our work in, in its taxes, yes, there are consequences, but they're de minimis, relatively speaking. So if someone's thinking about risk management here and they're thinking about time, you know, this is not something just to protect for the next three months. Right. This is something they can protect longer than that, right? Like how how long can somebody have this kind of an overlay wrapped around this position to just protect them? Indefinitely. And in fact, this is one of the things that that people really become accustomed to after working with us is they think about options in the finite window of time, that being the expiration. And once they understand that you can do this every three months perpetually, the value proposition of this becoming a quote unquote strategy becomes a lot larger. And so you're rinsing and repeating this this process through our optimizations is really where where our largest value prop is in managing these assets for for folks. Sometimes people will come to us with an objective in a very finite window of time, think end of year. Why end of year? Well, that's when that's when the 1099s get generated at the, at the custodians. So thinking about this over cycles and, and the ability to achieve, you know, a total return or an after-tax wealth total return that is superior than having not used the asset class. That that's really the crux of our entire body of work. And this is something that is flexible, correct? Like this isn't something that the client decides. Yeah, it makes sense right now. I want to want to hedge some risk here. They don't turn this on and have to leave this on forever. Like how easy is it to to have this activated or deactivated based on the client's desires? Completely uh, synergistic with all their goals and objectives. So we we think about this as daily liquid. Uh, it's transparent. It's in your account. And turn us on, turn us off with the real value prop being completely customized. So you, Jim, could have 10,000 shares of Microsoft. Your colleague, Eric, on the call, he could have 10,000 shares of Microsoft. You both could run covered calls with the desire to seek income, but you might have completely different objectives in how we want to optimize for you. And so this this often has to do with tax. This often have, has to do with the, the account type. So think your IRA versus a taxable account. For ultra high net worth, those get into estates and trusts. All of our work can mold and and be bespoke to the individual and their advisor or their CPA. We just need to learn about where those objectives are. Um, but the the whole process and our value prop is turn it on, turn it off, it's daily liquid. You'll get to see it the second we start making trades. They'll be in your account. But uh, the largest is listening and adhering to to your goals and objectives and delivering upon that. Yeah, because I think it's a good point. Like you mentioned, like Eric Johnson, he may have Microsoft. I own Microsoft. He might be more risk averse than I am. He might be saying, I'm really just worried about a big meltdown and he may want a very large amount of protection. And I may say, well, you know, I just need some protection. And and that's where this customization comes into play. It, it can't be a one size fits all proposition. Can, completely. And put yourself in, in an advisor's shoes who has, you know, six executives all that worked collectively at Coca-Cola or John Deere or wherever they may have worked. They're going to they're going to want to treat those situations very unique to the individual and their family's goals, um both with the position and scope but also with their other portfolio risks. Our best work is listening to the whole picture adjacent to the advisor on behalf of their client and then solving for our, you know, unique niche value props um, and where those value propositions really come to life 
is risk management focusing on how their tax picture is, right? So if they have a bunch of realized loss that they've accumulated year to date, uh, I think 2022, that's a very different conversation than 2023 or 2021 in which the NASDAQ's up 40% year to date or was up you know, 40% in 2022. So those, the, the market conditions often will dictate the optimal solution set. So one more thing before we jump on to another scenario is, you know, you mentioned like this is almost like buying insurance in a way uh, for some of the positions. And I think instantly people think, okay, I got to reach in my pocket. I got to outlay cash in order to make this work. But that's not really the way this works, right? I mean, clients can implement this and be cash flow neutral, correct? Yeah. I mean, definitely it's it's unique to the strategy and unique to the security, meaning um, the cost of insurance is very different for Tesla than Bristol-Myers or Berkshire Hathaway. You're correct. You can self-fund insurance through other strategies um, that we run. And so when you pair these together, and the use case that I'm outlining here is selling calls income, buying a put is the concept of insurance. When you bolt them on together, that's what we describe as a collar. It creates a floor and a ceiling. And when you graph what that looks like, it, it, it resembles a collar. Um, so you can self-fund or make these quote-unquote cash flow neutral to your point. And that's at onset, these things ebb and flow. And so that might not be perpetually true um, given market conditions, but largely speaking, you can self-finance a lot of the insurance via the selling of calls. So does the Spider Rock have custody over the positions that are being hedged or is that money held in the client's existing investment account and, and you guys are just kind of an add-on to that? How does that work? That's a great question. So one of the things that we noticed um, is making this operationally as easy uh, for the client, the advisor. So we don't require anybody to open a new account. We don't require custody. We have an infrastructure and all of the data nested underneath TD and Fidelity and Schwab and Pershing and probably many others in which folks that are listening um, may or may not have their assets at one of those venues, but there are many more. And the reality is, is we get turned on as what we would classify as a sub-advisor. So that gives us an access point into your account, gives us discretion to trade the options according to our mandates. And then we trade and we allocate those right back into the back office of Schwab and or wherever wherever the, the client's custody is. Um, and then all the reporting turns live, all the tax equations uh, are governed by them. And as the advisors start to use us more and more and more, um, it becomes a little bit more scalable, right? So so the first one is always, you know, the, the most handholding. And then after uh, you do two or three or five of these things, it, it goes fairly efficiently and you can almost put these things on autopilot, you know, when, once you get the operational cadence down. Fantastic. So let, let's talk about another scenario where somebody says, look, I, I have this stock. I want to get out of it. I don't want to continue to hold XYZ company. And I'm looking to exchange specific company risk for broader, broader market risk. Is there a way they can use options for something like that? Yeah. You know, this is this has been probably one of our, I think, our best pieces of work over the years, um, just in listening to advisors requests. So uh, historically speaking, you know, folks knowing that there's a tax friction will say, hey, I, you know, I've amassed this this large position and maybe wherever they they worked and now they're retired. And so I'm, you know, in retirement now and I don't want as much concentrated risk in the security that I worked for, but I would love to stay invested in the market. And so historically speaking, there is a product that does that. It's called Exchange Fund. And our clients came to us and basically said, okay, you guys are the derivatives experts that I've hired. There's got to be a way to think about how to exchange my, I'll use John Deere for the S&P 500 through the usage of options. And and lo and behold, there, there was, and 
we did a little bit of modeling, fair amount of research, and how to think about the after-tax equivalent in seven years. And so exchange funds uh, really build their product set for tax efficiency about you pledging your security into an LP with other like shareholders, and you, you're you locked up for seven years. And so the feedback was, I don't want to be locked up for seven years. I'd like to control my tax picture. And more importantly, I don't want the, the basis risk or the tracking error to my index because I know in this exchange fund, then I'm beholden to the performance of every other LP like myself when I pledge my John Deere and they are going to insert, you know, security XYZ. So can you solve this in my insert custodian Schwab account with swapping my John Deere for the market? And the answer is yes. And so we built a solution set. We call it exchange fund replication. Um, we, we coined the phrase just because it solves the same objective as an exchange fund, but we're replicating its outcomes via via listed options. And so it's fairly simple. We collar the the concentrated stock and we do the inverse of that in an index of your choosing and we rebalance it um, really with with after-tax outcomes in mind. And so when there are options losses, we use those to what we call strategically liquidate this exact share count of your of your John Deere. And you rinse and repeat this process through market conditions. And you'll see in a fair amount of uh, market conditions, if not m- many or most, that your after-tax outcomes are equal to or often superior than an exchange fund, which is a buy and hold, wait seven years. So this comes through active management. This comes through understanding that there is an optimization per calendar year, tax year. And this has been a very well-received solution of ours. And it's probably the most interesting conversation, probably one of the highest value propositions. And it's you know a little bit more operationally intense, but we own that work. That, that, that's on our side. So getting folks comfortable with the process, getting folks comfortable with the outcomes um, is step one and step two. And then we we work in tandem with the advisor and their CPA year over year over year uh, to really maximize for the after-tax piece. Something you mentioned that I think some people might be confused about is the uh, the difference between an exchange fund and an exchange traded fund, like an ETF. These are different things. Uh, can you just explain what, a, what an exchange fund is and because when you said that that seven year hold period, a lot of people are going, wait a minute, I've got shares of whatever ETF, I could sell whenever yeah, I want. Different no, topic, right? Hundred percent different topic. Um, and I'm glad you highlighted this. So, yeah, an, an ETF is an exchange traded fund. An exchange fund is a privately held limited partnership. Very, very different. ETFs tick and talk on on an exchange every day. Uh, they're liquid. You can buy and sell on a moment's notice. An exchange fund is a privately held investment pooled vehicle uh, of which you are a limited partner or a subscriber. There are subscription docs. You have to be a qualified purchaser, $5 million net worth. Often within different private partnerships, there there are holding periods. And so for an exchange fund to get the after-tax benefits that the government or the IRS has allowed, uh, you have to hold it for seven years. Very, very different. And so those were the negative pieces of feedback that we were receiving from our clients uh, that we tried to improve the solution set around. And so we just coined our version or our solution, the exchange fund replication, because it replicates the objective of an exchange fund, which is, I don't want concentrated risk. I want diversified market risk. Uh, and if we can solve that in a different format, hence the replication. And isn't isn't the point behind the exchange fund that might be, okay, I own a bunch of Microsoft, right? I'm going to put my stock into the fund. You may own a bunch of John Deere. You're putting yours into the fund. And, and through all these different investors that are pulling together, that's how you're starting to get that a diversified risk management, right? Precisely. Yep. And then they manage to a tracking error figure and they'll only accept shares within the fund that uh, allow their tracking error to be, you know, pursuant to their prospectus within tolerance. 
and then they'll rebalance accordingly. But but the the crux of it is is you don't control what comes in that fund. Um, and so at the end of seven years, they deliver the basket of things that were in that fund back to you, Parapasu, with the other shareholders. Um, and you may not want those securities. So you've solved for concentration risk into diversification. Great. But you still have a low basis diversified portfolio, and you may or may not want those securities. So we, we've tried to improve upon all those elements. Um, and this is all just, you know, born from client feedback. And, you know, Jim, everybody says, how did you come up with this? Well, if you talk to a thousand advisors and you solve for their pain points, then the solutions are are built um, organically f- for those use cases. So it was it was a, just a big feedback loop, really just taking our core competency with derivatives and, and mapping them into financial advisors, you know, CPAs, estate planning attorneys, things of that nature. Perfect segue into uh, our third scenario I wanted to ask you about before we just go into some general questions that I know are on everybody's mind as they're listening to this. And this last scenario is, what if somebody's just trying to generate more cash flow? They're retired, or maybe they're just looking for income they can deploy elsewhere in their overall plan. They're saying, I've got this got this stock. Yeah, it may grow, but I, I, I want cash flow now and I want it on a, a fairly recurring basis. How do option strategies fit in for somebody like that? Yeah, you know, it's um, it's probably the most ubiquitous use case, and where where people like when they think of option strategies, they instantaneously you know rhyme that with income. Um, and that's that's true, definitely from a marketing perspective. I think in practice, um, forget dividends for a second. So if you have a non-dividend paying security, how do you produce more income or cash flow? So you highlighted the in the event that the stock goes down, you know. Uh, selling call options can produce that income stream. That is true. It's it's in the event that the stock really rallies. And so we always message very, very consistently that the selling of call options will produce income in two, in two of three environments. Markets down, markets are flat, selling call options will produce income. Markets up, however, we need to produce that income in a different format. And so how you produce that income is you have to be willing to sell some shares. And so we don't want to prevent, uh, sorry, we don't want to cause a tax event and so the way we're going to manage that is to buy back your options. And more often than not, if the market or the stock have rallied a bunch, then those options being bought back are going to be at a loss. Well, anybody who's ever managed any portfolio before knows that tax loss harvesting can be done. And so we're going to basically build that same process in which we take the options losses if and when they arise. And we're going to sell some ratable amount of shares, not all the shares, but some amount. And it's the selling of those shares that can produce the income. So it won't be as predictable as a dividend, but you can definitely produce cash flow. And so when you do this over and over and over in in a variety of market conditions, Jim, you know that two of three market conditions, for lack of a better phrase and and being a broken record here, will produce that income stream, right? Stock down or stock flat. How we produce that income in the up market is a function of how much the stock has rallied. But you can produce and engineer that income stream. You just have to be willing to sell some shares. The difference here is you're selling those shares with a tax focus, meaning efficiently, um, and not blowing out of all of the shares. So here's the questions I know. There's definitely people thinking this. So I just want to fire away a few of these things and, and get your take on this. The first one is for the person that's a little bit more cynical going, okay, this is so great. Why wouldn't everybody do this? Yeah, I listen, I think... Sure, you've never heard that one before. It's, fun, it's <laughs> funny. It's you, you, you... You have enough enough of these conversations and you'll hear almost everything at least twice. That that one's come up a good dozen times. I think about that for, for two reasons. One, you, you need to be able to scale this and to do that requires a fair amount of infrastructure and technology. So why hasn't everybody done this? Some folks have tried. There are some other groups. We do have competitors. 
um, but they limit themselves in, in a scale tipping point. And so I think taking a focus on really solving this um, at scale was was one of our concerted initial, initial efforts. And so bringing this to the masses and truly democratizing the value proposition is a core component of of why now or, or why hasn't everybody done this? There, there's, there are bottlenecks to scaling this and, and we've solved a lot of those bottlenecks. So that's one. The second is, you know, I think the time and the energy at the advisor level to focus on this, you know, Cerulli did a really good study, independent consulting piece, probably about seven years ago, almost when we started the business, it was somewhat serendipitous in their results, which basically said, you know, how many advisors use option strategies? And then they pulled, well, for those that use option strategies, which types of strategies do you use? But more importantly, for those that don't, why don't you? And and it come the conclusion was it was threefold. One, there was an, a level of expertise and a confidence level within just selling call options, right? And so for some, they had that, and so for some, they don't. And the next focus was, okay, for those that have it, then what's your next challenge? And it was technology. And if it wasn't technology, it was time. And if it wasn't technology or time, then it was the liability of performing the strategy. And so you add all this up and building a business with the sole focus of A, solving the asset class with an investment competency, one, as a fiduciary, two, being able to scale the business from an operations and a technology component, three, building the infrastructure to support all of these customized needs um, for the fiduciary work on an after-tax basis, but also own the liability. And so at an enterprise level, folks are in the outsourcing business more and more and more with their investment management, right? For all of these reasons and liability is, is, is one of them. And so when you, why doesn't everybody do this? Well, those are the reasons why um, there's an expertise we've solved for that. That's our core background as investment professionals. There's a technology scale element, both operationally and in the infrastructure. And then at the enterprise level, you know, there's there's a risk and a liability to perform in these, and we're, we, you know, welcome that as this is our core business. Every every dollar we've invested in the business is solving the robustness and the quality control of everything that I kind of have highlighted here. And you know, frankly, it's it's a messaging game, right? So people need to be aware. Um, and our partners at BlackRock are very large in all of their other asset classes, and and we're bringing listed customized derivative solutions with them as in our partnership. And I think as far as like the end investor thinking about, well, why doesn't everybody do this? You know, I, I think a lot of investors, they really prefer a more consistent return versus having that wild ride. Or, uh, you know, they're just thinking that I want to get rich once in life. I don't want to have to keep doing it again and again. That means something's broken. So I think they want to stay rich versus try to get rich. But there's an opportunity cost on the upside of some of this, isn't there? Completely. I, did you steal that stay rich, not get rich line from me? Because I use it almost every day. I think I did. Um, we were talking a few weeks ago and uh, I wrote that one down and now I'm using it as if it was my idea, but that was definitely yours. <laughs> you, you can coin it. I'm fine with you. <laughs> just don't trademark it. Yeah. Just pl plagiarizing. Um, no, it's, it's, it's a reality though. You know, there is a cost and yes, these are risk management techniques that are built to stay rich, not get rich. I think the opportunity cost in doing this is foregone upside. You know, we sit in 2023 with the market having come out of the blocks here fairly strong with the, the last decade compounding it, you know, north of 10% in almost all global equity indices. Like if you ask any institution, academic consultant on what forward-looking equity returns are, they're they're not that. And simultaneously, you have interest rates higher. So it's a much different capital markets backdrop today than, than the last decade for sure. And when you think about 
some of these value propositions in totality with U.S. demographics in focus. The baby boomer generation, the largest wealth creation uh, in the history of our country and, and their generational wealth transfer, A, but more importantly, living the quality of the life that they want in retirement, stay, staying rich while you're alive is, is a core thesis there. And these strategies are built to do that. And so bringing the democratization down to the folks that need it the most is an element of where our clients utilize us. And then when you think about the after-tax consequences here and, and really optimizing for after-tax outcomes, the more wealthy you are, the more probably sensitive you are to taxes. And so the value proposition hits both ends of the barbell of the demographic profiling. Um, but yes, they, I mean, these are, these are fairly plain vanilla, stay rich, not get rich strategies. Yes, there's a ton of sophistication in what we can do, um, but I'm a big believer of the KISS acronym, keep it simple, stupid. Um, and if we can solve it with the simplest, most elegant solution, then then that's probably right if it solves the investment objectives of the client. So another thought is just, I think people, when they, when they think of some of these topics we covered today, they're thinking of the ultra wealthy, the uber rich. And they do things like this. And they've been doing things like this for many, many years. And I think people start to think, well, is this for... You know the more common investor, or the what I call the mass affluent. I think what our industry is calling the mass affluent people that may have anywhere from you know a million to you know six or seven million bucks. Uh, are these strategies for people like that? You know, I think when we when we built the business, it was definitely catered towards the mass affluent, as we thought that two things: one, uh, our technological advantages and footprint and the infrastructure. Um, we're truly democratizing the asset class, so that was the target focus coupled with the demographics and and U.S. wealth and, and call it the baby boomer retirees. As we've navigated, we've started um, with a whole host of clients with roughly, call it a $250,000 to $500,000 investment mandate. What's happened is each advisor uses us within their practice somewhat differently. And the advisors that maybe came to us with a need of you know, a $500,000 use case, all of a sudden really start to address the biggest problems in their practice. And sometimes the biggest problems are their biggest clients. And so maybe this was a left turn in, in where we've trafficked, but while we've got a huge value proposition to deliver this at scale, advisors typically will manage between 30 and 100 clients per advisor. We've definitely, I'll call it, built our franchise around servicing the advisor. So there are advisors that use us for their mass affluent, $250,000 rinse and repeat. And then there are advisors that only utilize us on their upper echelon, you know, top two clients with $50 million. Because of the way averages work, our average account size is very skewed because of those higher end use cases. But the more um, groups at the enterprise level really start to adopt the asset class, the more we are really embedded as a core sleeve or a core risk management protocol um, within a practice. And so, you know, we'll get 20 accounts from an and from an advisor, all with 10% covered call mandates at the at the index level, right? And so there's two real forces. It's scaling in a in a portfolio, the value of risk management at, at a model level or at the index level. Um, just think equity beta. And how to solve for, for objectives there, both income and outside protection or volatility management. You meant kind of stay rich, not get rich. Uh, and then there is, by definition, concentrated stock. If you have the founder of a security, uh, they're going to have tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. And so the the way averages work, you know, it'll tilt to 
tilt the scales you know to the higher end if you were just a blanket statement what's your average account size so last question for you then we'll, we'll wrap up here uh derivatives are it's a term that it, it actually is a pretty big topic it's not just what we talked about here today and historically i think it's had some media coverage that um has been uh, I think a little slanted, a little skewed. I think it's a it's a pretty misunderstood topic. I think uh, sometimes people hear the word derivatives, and if they remember the financial crisis of two thousand eight, it was you know derivatives were blanketed is is the reason a big reason why we had the global financial crisis. Um, so can you talk a little bit about some of the negative media coverage and what that means, and if that applies to what we talked about today? I'd say the industry uh, has definitely been painted with that picture. Uh, there is a fallacy if you were to dive a little bit deeper in understanding it. When used appropriately, they're very prudent, useful fiduciary tools, keyword when used appropriately or key phrase. Part of our positioning and part of our enterprise value proposition is putting in the hands of people that are going to use them prudently. Um, that's why they hire us. So that's point one. Um, point two. Everybody in every investment needs to understand if there's any inherent leverage in the investment themselves. And so whenever derivatives get painted in a negative light, I can instantaneously ask one question, was there leverage embedded in that structure, in that product, or in that fund? And if the answer is yes, then it's likely that derivatives will get painted negatively. If the answer is no, then it is almost inverse. And so again, when used prudently, you take those two things. And then when you think about where that media, media needs to tell a story and, it, and it's it's good storytelling to paint them in that picture. Warren Buffett, I think, is on the record of saying, you know, derivatives can be weapons of mass destruction. I think he's probably one of the largest users of derivatives on Wall Street. And so the the irony in that statement is he's fully abreast and cognizant and, and utilizing them appropriately or, or his team. And when used inappropriately or, or when there is embedded leverage that's not fully understood, they can end badly. And that's that goes with any investment, right? So I really try to take a step back and we, we try not to use any jargon. Calls and puts sometimes aren't even in the vernacular. It's what are we trying to solve in absence of tax? We are going to try to de-risk you, right? Let's stay rich, not get rich. And in doing so, let's be thoughtful about how we do this. And then your Mr. Advisor, Enterprise, or Client are hiring us to be the prudent steward of your capital as a fiduciary here. And so we're going to take that that risk off of your plate. These are there is no counterparty. Again, these are listed instruments. They're daily transparent. You can turn us on, you can turn us off. And they're sitting right in your same exact account at the custodian of your choosing. And so removing those stereotypes, removing those pain points. But most importantly, you know, investment management, financial advisory is a trust business. We're in the same business. And so you're hiring a, an expert to entrust that work. And so it's our job to deliver upon what we say we're going to do uh, with the highest fiduciary standard. Well, this is a topic that, I, again, I was excited to do this episode because I know it's new to a lot of a lot of our listeners. And I think education is really important for a topic like this. So Eric, if somebody wants to learn more about what we talked about today, are there any resources that you can point them to? Certainly. So our website, uh, www.spiderrockadvisors.com is, is a good starting point. Uh, if you have a relationship with our firm or with a BlackRock market leader, they will be able to also steer you in the right direction, depending upon what the inquiry is. Uh, and again, at the end of the day, like the, the industry 
of options in general. Um, the CBOE, the OIC, the OCC are all good references um, to be a little bit more in independent objective stance uh, at the industry that all have educational collateral. Fantastic. Well, Eric, thanks again for coming on the show. I, I think this was just an awesome episode. And uh, I know I myself am going to listen to it several times. And uh, we appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. I appreciate it, Jim. All right. Eric Johnson, we'll turn it back to you and have us uh, get us all wrapped up. Remember I talked about that rewind button? Yeah, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There was a ton of information in this and a lot of it. I'm, I'm just kind of writing some things down to, you know, Jim, you and I are talking later. Anywho, uh, for, for anybody else out there listening that is writing stuff down or needs that rewind button, again, call Jim to get some clarification because he will be able to explain it a lot better or put you in touch with somebody who can. Um, Eric, fantastic stuff. Jim, if people are listening and saying, hey, I really, this interests me, but I need to dive a little bit deeper, why don't you give them your contact info so they can reach out to you? Of course, easiest way to reach us is to visit our website, www.mcgovernwealth.com. There's a contact us button. You can click that or you can send us an email at info at mcgovernwealth.com. Just tell us that you're a listener of the show and you want to talk about some of these option strategies and we'll jump on a call and see how we can help. Perfect. Eric, thank you so much again. Jim, of course, thank you. And our last thank you goes to the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast with Jim McGovern. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Jim comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review, as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at McGovern Wealth Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Be sure to follow the show to be notified when new episodes become available. To suggest a topic or guest for a future episode, or learn more about how we can help to maximize outcomes in your life, visit our website at www.mcgovernwealth.com. This podcast is intended for general public use and is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities. Guardian, or McGovern Wealth Group, and opinions stated are their own. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities, LLC, is not undertaking to provide investment advice or a recommendation for any specific individual or situation, or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a financial representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Jim McGovern is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS. Member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America. Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. McGovern Wealth Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. CA Insurance License Number 0F67329. AR Insurance License Number 7119103. California Insurance License Number 0F67329. Arkansas Insurance License Number 7119103. Compliance Number 2023-160639. Expire September 2025.